Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Setter Tales podcast. I'm Wade Kisner. Um, today, uh, for our podcast, uh, my partner Thomas obviously is not here tonight, and uh, he's taking care of a mentored uh, youth hunt uh, sponsored by his uh, Pheasants Forever chapter, and uh, that is a great event, and uh, uh, Thomas is really um, a big into getting youth into the field uh, so that we have uh, a future generation to take care of uh, gun dogs and wing shooting in the future. And so he's going to be gone tonight. He'll be back next week. Uh, but in his absence, I'm going to fly it solo tonight. And so uh, uh, we're going to do that. Um, you know, it's kind of a special podcast we're going to do. It's we're, it's a little bit different. Uh, we'll probably, there's so much information, we'll probably do it in, in more than one part, uh, perhaps too. But uh, our guest tonight is Ian Donovan, and um, Ian is with the uh, United States Army, and he's a canine handler and has done that with some special operations uh, group uh, for several years. I got to meet uh, Ian about four years ago at a Veterans Heroes Hunt here in Iowa, and uh, we kind of hit it off, and I just thought he had some great information. We could have talked all night about training dogs and how the military side of training um, really coincides with a lot of things that we do with our our hunting dogs, and so uh, he's been gracious enough to come on and uh, give us a little insight about what the guys on the military side are doing to develop dogs, uh, train dogs, and how that later can uh, translate into some tips that we might uh, pick up from that. So, uh, Ian, we'll bring him in now. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Great, Wade. Good to see you, man. It's always fun yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, and the first thing I want to say is thank you for your service, Ian. Um, you have been in the Army for many years now, I know, and uh, have a lot of background information and just, you know, some some really interesting things sometimes that uh, most people don't really realize what uh, you, know, you and your fellow handlers do with some of the dogs and and, and the time and the effort that goes into training those dogs. Uh, first, I understand that you grew up kind of being a, a hunting kid, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. I want to thank, say thanks for uh, thanks for, for realizing the, the service that it takes to the country. It's the greatest honor that I've ever known, ever will know, uh, to be able to serve our country in the capacity that I have. And uh, look forward to uh, continuing that if I can. And if I can't, uh, we'll see how I can still help help the country but a big patriot and yeah that came from really my, my roots growing up in louisiana uh, just a country kid always obsessed with the pursuit of game animals it didn't matter if it was a frog or a fish or a duck or a deer or a rabbit you know um and that obsession kind of gave way to a, a passion when it came to uh, realizing that i could utilize dogs to assist me with that pursuit of game animals so, yeah, from an early age, you know, I'd, I'd have great beagles that my grandpa would, would let me take from him and, and start to train and work and, you know, learning little things like how to make sure they only run a rabbit, um, no off-game species, run them full circle so that you can get a shot at them, things like that. Um, quickly gave way and progressed to Labrador retrievers for waterfowl and then later on upland bird dogs, uh, specifically English pointers, some GSPs here and there. Welcome birds, which wasn't very popular in Louisiana, but some of the surrounding states it was. So, yeah, that's pretty much more like a waterfowl kind of area, isn't it? For the most part, down there. Oh, sure. Yeah, a lot yeah. of waterfowl. Probably more water out where I was, and there was land. 
so you could get out there and not see another boat, not see another hunter all day. It was really, it was a unique um, experience to grow up in, something we really enjoyed. Uh, got a couple brothers, and uh, we just stayed lost out there, man. But uh, I kind of got away from from dogs uh, when I joined the military, and I, I came into the military with something that's known as an 18 X-ray contract, which gave me the opportunity to go uh, to Special Forces Assessment and Selection. So that happened after boot camp and airborne school, where they teach you how to jump out of planes. And uh, after about two years of the course, after I got selected, went through the course, um, I got stationed at Fort Campbell in Kentucky uh, with 5th Special Forces Group in the U.S. Army. And our area of responsibility was the Middle East. Most of us are Arabic speakers. Got some Russian speakers in there and some French speakers, but primarily Arabic. And uh, I just went to work, man. It's, uh, it's what I joined the Army to do. It was a very deployed unit, uh, very busy uh, with the GWAT or the Global War on Terror. And, you know, ISIS is who I predominantly fought against in the Middle East. And um, at a certain point in my career, about halfway through, um, you know, combat started to slow down. The trips slowed down for us. To be honest, what we were doing, we were doing our job so well that the enemy was just no more. You know, they were just getting hard to find and root out and uh, destroy, which is a good thing. But for us, you know, that's what we that's what we joined to do. That's what we we work every day to, to specialize and being very good at. So I started to look at areas within my unit that would keep me geared in the in toward combat. And, uh, you know, you always want to be better than you were today than you were yesterday, be better tomorrow than you are today. Um, just keep building that resume. And that's something that I, was important to me in my career uh, to kind of be as lethal as I could or have as many tools in the toolbox that would allow me to be successful over there. So I went to the, kennel, the dog detachment, the MPC detachment. Um, and what drew me there was they don't send dogs on training missions. They don't send handlers and dogs on training missions where we may go and just train another country's special operations units, but not be able to go to combat. With them. Um, they only send dogs and handlers to combat scenarios and situations. And so I kind of looked at them initially as a ticket into combat, you know, to keep going and, and being able to fight. Um, and then very quickly after I arrived there, did I realize the absolute tool that they were, not only to increase uh, unit lethality, but unit survivability as well, which is pretty important to me. Um, keep my buddies that I you know, deployed with and, and uh, grown up in the Army with safe. Um, so went there for two deployments uh, with two different dogs, kind of kind of rose through the ranks at the kennels and um went from the handler position to the green suit trainer position, which means that I was the trainer for uh, the active duty trainer for the guys. And in lieu of uh, not having a civilian trainer, which is contracted for the program, which we didn't have for a while, I kind of stepped up into that role. So I was able to help the guys in the detachment um, with some of the issues that we all had across the board with the types of dogs that we were getting. Um, and then from there, kind of went to the assistant kennel master position room for kennel master and then finished out at the kennel master position. Um, but this MPC program is, is something that I know the general public doesn't have a lot of knowledge about. And it's something that's extremely interesting in my opinion. And I think in conversation with you as well, it's something that I like. Absolutely. To Let me ask a couple questions. Uh, sure. I'm, I'm sure everybody that's watching is thinking perhaps yeah. the same thing. Um, but how many dogs are we talking about that you were that you had there at Fort Campbell that were designated for this kind of kind of mission? 
Right. So the dogs we have first are called MPCs. It stands for multi-purpose canine. It's because they do three things as opposed to a dual-purpose canine, which does only two things. So the th three things that they do are they find bombs. They, they find explosive odor, explosive detection dogs. Um, they track personnel, meaning they track footstep to footstep, disturbed earth. We'll talk a little bit more. Um, and then, obviously, they apprehend enemy personnel. So they're bite dogs. We train them. And patrol work is what it's called, but we train them to bite, to bite well, and to be pretty passionate about uh, using their teeth. Um, but on a good day, you know, we should have 12 dogs, but it's pretty hard to keep that many guys down there with how, you know, spread thin we are because of the workload. So, you know, we may have six dogs, we may have seven dogs, eight dogs. We always try to keep a few spares just in case, um, you know, a dog team goes down overseas. We can backfill them pretty quickly. Um, so and those are a little different. So while you're training uh, with the group at Port Campbell, then you out you have some of your teams that are deployed during that period of time. They're overseas somewhere. Oh yeah, kind on of assignment. So. Okay, right. So we'll always have guys that are out of the door. We kind of kind of call it. We're they're overseas, um, and we're constantly working to you know backfill the next guys that have to go. So just a constant rotation of uh, being prepared and, and increasing your level of preparedness pretty much every day and then a lot of nights too because a lot of the work we do over there is during hours of darkness because we have night vision some of the other guys don't so stacks odds in your favor but that that throws a whole wrench in the operation when it comes to understanding your dog being able to read your dog um, you go from from big situational awareness to looking through kind of a toilet paper tube two of them for us uh, at night to be able to see your dog so you know Situational awareness is huge, and being able to understand your dog's changes of behavior is pretty big as well. Um, so we we got into talking about the, the dog aspect of it from from the time you're selecting a dog. and that uh, are, So you're the one that would actually go and say, we need two or three new dogs in the kennel. You're the person that goes and tries to, to determine which dogs are going to fit sure. for your needs, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it works is in the kennel master position. You you know the guys that are there that you know their time's almost up. Uh, you know that when you need new guys, you know when the dogs' times are almost up. You know when you need to backfill dogs as well. So um, yeah, it's my job to understand my men first and foremost. The guys that work for me, uh, understand their strengths and weaknesses, their personalities, and then I go and select a dog that will fit with them. And that knowledge comes from you know, being a handler for so long, a trainer, and uh, understanding people and dogs, which is kind of something you need to, you know, need to understand both aspects of. But yeah, when I, when I need a dog, uh, we, we source our dogs through a, a contracting company. Um, they get their dogs from Europe. So Slovakia, Germany, Hungary, Holland, um, most of our, almost all of our dogs come from Europe. Um, and that's just because the bloodlines are so pure there. They're not, they're not breeding out certain drives that we like to see uh, where some American breeders kind of are. You know, you, these American breeders are breeding out prey drive, hunt drive, uh, intensity, high energy, aggression, um, because it's not something they want waiting for them when they get home from 10 hours in their apartment. Right? Uh, so we, we get all of our dogs from Europe. And once we do that, um, they run a selection process for the kennel masters from each group. Um, and some of the other military units that go to the same place. And we select a dog based off of what our needs are. Um, and each operational environment's a little different. You know, ours is the Middle East. So uh, above and beyond everything else, uh, you'll hear me say a few things in this interview. Uh, 
like drives and instincts, hunt drive, prey drive. We'll explain kind of what that is, but hunt drive for me supersedes all else. Prey drive is pretty easy to create in a dog. Most of these dogs have pretty high prey drive, which is anything that moves in their environment catches their attention. And the majority of them want to go put their mouth on it. Um, but hunt drive is the ability to know is in your eyes and your ears, just like we do to hunt out um, a source of interest that could be for the dogs. You know, we try to make that either enemy personnel or explosive odor, and uh, it's paramount to all else. And a hot dog with a high hunt drive, it doesn't matter if it's 120 degrees uh, in the desert, he's going to hunt. You know, his reward is to hunt. That's what uh, makes him tick. Whereas some dogs with high prey drive, you kind of have to get them back in the game if they get a little bored pulling a toy out or getting their picking their interest again um, but yeah we train these dogs we basically manipulate them to do what we want them to do by making them think it's the most fun thing on earth to do so that they'll run through a brick wall you know for a tennis ball um, but we will we'll get these dogs normally around a, a year and a half sometimes two years old from europe and when we get them they're pretty much a blank slate for the most part those are the dogs that i like to select meaning they're very sound um, physically and uh, for the most part, emotionally and mentally. Some dogs have a little screw loose, but we can weed those guys out in selection. Um, we need a dog that's pretty confident. You know, alpha males are great. Um, we need a dog that's got high, high hunt drive, decent prey drive, um, high possessive drive. He wants to possess things, but he's not so crazy about it that he won't give it up. You know, and that's things we can work with. Now. Um, but after selecting the dog, our dog and handler will go through an eight-week course. With that, with that contractor. And then he'll come back to us for what we call an advanced course. We run him through certain scenarios. Um, when he when he, he graduates that course, the dog is going to be able to find explosive odor and alert on it, either lay down or sit down, some alert that we ask the dog, we, we teach the dog to give us. He's going to be able to track people and he's going to be able to use his mouth to apprehend people, uh, to bite, use really solid control when we get the dog, we, we send, um, ensure that he's ready for deployment. And then that dog and that handler will be together for the next two and a half to three years um, deploying periodically throughout that time based on the operation tempo um, that the unit's experiencing. So it's uh, it's it takes a certain person to do the job well because you've got to not only keep up with your own personal skills as a soldier, shoot, move, and communicate, but you're also responsible for uh, the success of a dog now, and, and his training and his well-being and his health, health and everything else. So it's a full-time job, but it's a lot of fun. And it's uh, pretty rewarding because you see every day uh, the fruits of your labor, you know, the dog that you're training and working with on a daily basis. What, what typically is the, uh, uh, I guess, the period of time that from that time you start training that dog, what, what kind is their work? Uh, level as far as how many years or how how long do, does it matter how many times that dog's been in combat does it or does it do they just age out at some point where they're not physically able to do do the task right well that's all dog dependent really just like people um, some of them physically can put up with a little more than others can just because of the way they're built some of them mentally can put up with a little more than others can just because of the way that they're wired um, we will always test the dog prior to deployment well before deployment to see if he's up to the task mentally and physically. And um, if he's not, then that's when we start you know, 
understanding he's not going to go on this next trip. We're going to have a guy fill in for him, but we know that well in advance. Uh, we have a veterinary staff on 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 site that that helps us with the, the physical side of things, the health side of things, and then the trainer. Really, you know, we're constantly putting these dogs in very high stress environments, and um, it takes a strong handler and a strong dog to make it through that. But typically. Two years, two and a half, two and a half years, you know, the dog will last the stint of that handler. Some dogs go home with that handler afterwards, you know, when they're done. Um, and some of those dogs, like the second dog that I worked, I was his second handler. Phenomenal dog, really, really strong dog, um, both mentally and physically. Very high tolerance for pain, but we have to understand that too, because we, you know, we don't want these dogs to cripple themselves because they will. They'll just continue to drive through it. Uh, mentally, he's a great dog as well. You know, these dogs don't have cognitive reasoning skills like humans do. So big explosions, gunfights, um, fights that they get into physically with enemy personnel. That's uh, it's not stuff that they can understand. So um, some of these dogs have some issues, and uh, we have to kind of kind of take them out of, of the, the rotation. And um, we can get them help sometimes. Sometimes it's just time for them to retire. So it's all dog specific, and really operation specific. You know how much how much abuse is this dog taken? whether it's uh, jumping out of helicopters, riding in the back of Humvees, um, side-by-sides, or razors, as we call them. It takes a takes a toll on a dog's joints. You know, I can see a ditch that's coming up, and I can brace myself for impact, and the dog just eats it. You know, uh, we try to help them through that as much as possible, but they take a beating. And so, yeah, about two and a half years, three years, and we'll let that handler decide if he would like to take the dog home at the end of the dog's working. And most of the time, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Now, you were de- deployed a few times before you got involved with the canines on on the handling side, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I'm assuming that uh, there was a canine and a handler embedded probably in some of those units that you were with at that time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. My, my first interaction was actually with a, an NPC overseas, but I was not his handler. But uh, what was the general attitude of you and the other uh, – uh, personnel as far as if you knew you were going someplace or taking on a mission but you had that canine along as part of the uh part of the group was that was that something that uh i guess gave you a little bit more uh not a comfort level but at least you you felt that that dog increased some of the opportunity to uh uh find those explosives or find uh find the enemy personnel that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, most of the guys that and we're trying to integrate more with teams so that they have an understanding of what the dog's capable of. Um, but you know, in country that, that the handler did a really good job of explaining to us what he was capable of and what we could expect from him and his dog, which is something that we carry on every trip we go on. But absolutely. I mean, not only a morale booster, right? Because we all have dogs at home. So you're over there in an unfamiliar place and people aren't very nice to you pretty much all the time and uh, having a dog there. It's pretty nice. We just had to be careful not to, not to take, treat them. And you can kind of turn them into a pet if you're not careful, right? Yes. The dog, the dog thinks it's more fun to just hang out with you uh, back at the farm or wherever you are, as opposed to going out on missions. So we integrated him as a member of the team, and that's what he he knew. It's called assaulter neutralization, where we have to make sure he understands who the assaulters are in the group, who the good guys are, because we're wearing the dark in high stress environments, the dog's got to be able to decipher um, and tell the difference between one of the good guys and one of the bad guys. And a lot of times it's, 
it's because he's so familiar with the team that he's attached to that he understands who people are. So is that all, is that all through odor? For a lot of part? Odor, right. We eat different than, you know, the guys we're chasing. We smell different than they smell. Uh, we're different size. We're, we were acting a little different. Um, the chemicals coming out of our body, as opposed to the chemicals, chemicals coming out of a guy who we're chasing his body is a little different. So dogs pick up on all of that. And the way that we create that scenario and training is, is just try and mimic it as best that we can. We're scared of dogs and put him in the suit or make the dog chase him. Someone who's literally legitimately t- terrified of a dog, you know, because overseas that's, that's what they are. But it did, it gives you a, a peace of mind to know that there's a dog team in front of you. Um, because we're pretty, we're pretty good at being better than them at, at shooting, you know, at each other uh, or fighting hand to hand or, or gun to gun. But when it comes to bombs, man, that's a great equalizer. We, we don't know yeah. where they're um, And it'll, it'll humble you pretty quick. If you've ever been in an explosion or seen the power that these explosives uh, create and some of the damage they do to the human body. So, yeah, we're, there's never been a guy that I've been in front of that said, I'll go in front of the dog. You know, <laughs> so, not, unless not. it's DOD, because they're, they're also some phenomenal guys to work with. Uh, but they even understand, you know, listen, that dog's here, unfortunately, to die for us so that we don't have to, if that's the case. I'll lose a dog all day over a human being. Um, and that's why they're there. So, yeah, a big peace of mind. And um, and then it does a lot for different missions, too. You know, if, if we need to get a guy but not, not kill a guy, if it's capture and not kill mission, then you know, it would be really beneficial to get a dog in there to get that guy out as opposed to us going in there. A certain level of insulation, just like police officers understand. I think I met, uh, I think I met that dog that you had mentioned uh, before. Uh, uh, I think you brought that dog to Iowa with you on one occasion I, and uh mm-hmm. pretty intense pretty intense guy yeah I I mean, he'll, he'll be intense until the day he dies it's just the way he's wired now he's at yeah. the house with me and uh, he's still super intense we live out in the country and you know people shoot guns all the time he runs straight to gunfire you know with yeah, his okay. with his hat was up he understands it's a fight and he because of training you know because of uh, creating that scenario for him which is a fun scenario he gets to go fight. He gets to win in the majority of the time in training, right? So he associates that type of environment with, with fun, right? So well, I, imagine you sl- I imagine you sleep pretty good at night knowing that he's in the house. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he was good to me overseas. He's good to me here. Yeah, uh, he's, a, incre- he's incredible. He's a, like I said, some of the demonstrations that you did with him, he's incredible. And, you know, having been in law enforcement like I was for 30-some years, um, I was a – I was um, – I had an opportunity to interact with a lot of law enforcement canine handlers, you know, and uh, it was somewhat a, sim- uh, a similar thing when you went to get a fugitive or, you know, something on a fugitive apprehension or something, and you had a canine team there, you kind of that, and they, you know, the the dog went into that, that building first. It was kind of one of those things uh, that, you know, if this guy's in there hid- hidden someplace, we're not, we got a, we got an option now, and, and you know we have an advantage with this sure. dog. However, in talking with you, um, those probably aren't the super aggressive dogs that end up in a, in a unit like yours. They're just a they're a little more because they're you're dealing with the public in a public uh, scenario a lot. They probably want that little more moderate kind of kind of dog personality yeah. as opposed to the. 
yes and no. I mean, it's um, I my hats off to law enforcement, hands down. They have, a, in my opinion, a more difficult job than we do because when we go into an area, there are no American citizens there, right? So, we we get to do things a little differently. Um, not that you know, we don't try to to, to we, we go after the guy we're going after, but we have a little more leeway than those guys do. And our dogs have the same thing, right? So we're going to tell the people that a dog's coming out, but um, if, if they don't choose to get out of the way, then they'll, the dog is, is, he's an equal opportunity biter. You know, he'll bite anybody who's in front of him. Um, and a lot of these bad guys know that. So they have human shields and that's something we have to train, train our way through uh, creating a, a situation where the dog can determine who the guy is we need, whether that be directing him with lasers, um, or voice commands, or it's really, it's really huge for these dogs to pick up on who, who the, who the guy is. And that's difficult if he's not being aggressive, right? Uh, we, we teach a lot of what we call dead prey bites, where a guy will be acting like he's already dead on objective so that we pass him and then uh, shoot us in the back. So like I said, the dog, if allowed to, will put his teeth on whatever we ask him to, whether it be dead or alive. Now, dead prey bites are difficult sometimes to teach because the dog gets a reaction out of well, who he's biting and that fuels his bite. You know, it, it, it makes it more fun for him. But uh, through training and proper aid placement and people that are in the suit, we can teach that dog to, to bite anything or anybody that we want him to. But yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a huge advantage that we have. I think people think the dog's teeth are the biggest advantage, but his nose for us is always the biggest advantage. Yeah. At the end of the day, I've got that. a couple. I've got a couple guns on me that I can that can do worse than his teeth can do, right? But um, his nose and his ability to tell us where people are, where explosives are, are very huge. And those are two different those are two different um, responses from the dog that we teach, right? Because it can't be the same. I need to know if there's a man behind that door or a bomb behind the door, right? So little things like that, um, and the ways that we train it are very important for our dogs. But yeah. The difference between our dogs and law enforcement, um, we know a dog that uh, that law enforcement probably wouldn't use, and that's kind of why we use different breeds. A lot of law enforcement use shepherds, German shepherds. Um, we use Belgian Malinois and Dutch shepherds predominantly. Not that police aren't, but uh, you can find those dogs with different drives than the ones that we have. But we need the dog to be extremely, extremely um, energetic and devoted to what he's doing because the kind of the environment that our dogs are working in is a little harsher than what law enforcement is working in. That dog can go in the back of a cop car in the AC for, you know, half the shift or three quarters of the shift and get pulled out for 30 minutes where our dogs are almost working on the opposite uh, ratios. They're out and working the entire time, um, getting put up and, and no AC, right? And dogs will acclimate to whatever environment you expose them to properly. But yeah, they're a little different dogs as the law enforcement side and, and the uh, military side. Let's uh, and let's talk a little bit about. Okay, you get that you've selected that that two year old dog that's kind of the blank slate, as you mentioned, and you bring them into the kennel. And then you know, what do you start looking for, and what what kind of behavioral things and training things do you start to do at that point? Yeah. yeah so one thing that we do above and beyond anything else is called environmental training. Right. So exposing the dogs to as many different things in his environment as you can in a positive way. Um, it's no different from your gun dogs, exposing them to truck rides, exposing them to boat rides, 
exposing the different surfaces, um, different types of cover in the field. You know, uh, a briar bush is a little different from a honeysuckle vine with no briars on it, right? So that dog's going to start to understand the difference between the two, but he's got to be able to jump into both, you know, pieces of cover. Um, so environmental training is huge. Uh, positive exposure to things in his environment that's new to him are very big, and we utilize that he's obsessed with, right? Most of the time a ball of some sort um, to create a positive first impression, a first exposure to anything in his environment that's new to him, heights, um, tunnels. So get him up high, get him down low, get him in the dark, um, get him on different objects, different I mean, you see a dog that's never been inside of a building, right? So dogs grip with their nails for the most part outside in grass. And they try to do that inside on a slick floor and they just skate the whole time. They need to understand to use the pads of their feet indoors. And that's something that you, it sounds crazy, but you've got to teach these dogs who've never seen that type of thing. Um, and then they shut their brain off whenever your decoy shows up and they just go back to what they know. It's something called the law of primacy, and you'll hear me kind of say that throughout um, this episode and, and hopefully the following. But what a dog learns first is what he's going to understand. I equate it to muscle memory in human beings, right? So um, if that dog, you know, understood that when walking on a surface, he uses his nails to grip when, you know, everything hits the fan and he's highly stressed out, that's what he's going to go back to regardless of how much we've tried to train him. But we, we're still going to try to work on that dog environmentally and, and expose him to as many different environmental factors as possible so that nothing surprises him. He's comfortable in every environment, every situation you can put him in. Uh, on top of the water, underwater, um, flying. I mean, things that normal dogs would never be exposed to. Dogs don't have great depth perception, so rappelling, climbing with a dog attached to you, things like that. Um, they don't understand... If they jump out of a helicopter off of a roof, they're going to kill themselves. So that's something that we have to be cognizant of. But they also need to understand rotor wash from a helicopter won't kill them. It's not something that'll, that'll uh, hurt them. Very, very strange for a dog. All these noises, these differences in lights, surfaces, uh, smell, uh, differences in, in temperature, everything. So we try to expose them to as much of that as we can in a positive way. And then we very quickly... Um, as we're doing that, expose them to odor as well. We want this for us, you know, IEDs have been a really big part of what we've been tasked to defeat overseas with our dogs. So his obedience to odor, that's another thing you'll hear me say, um, both with these dogs and with the gun dog is paramount. You know, I spend a little more with, with these bomb dogs and with gun dogs. And what I mean by that is if we're walking from point A to point B, and I'm not asking the dog to search for odor at this point, but he encounters explosive odor. He needs to find all, he needs to respond to that odor, regardless of whether or not I've told him to walk next to me or in front of me or in between my legs or whatever it may be. He needs to ignore me at that point and be more obedient to explosive odor than he is to me. Um, that's huge for us. So we do a lot of that with our dogs and show them that they can blow us off at any point in time if it's for explosive odor, if it's for man odor, right? If we're walking through a building and there's a person behind the door I want that dog to stop what he's doing and show me there's a person back there. I may do something with it. I may not, but I need for him to understand that every single time he encounters something like that, he needs to show it to him. Right. So that's something we, we start working on um, right off the gate, right off, right, right. Right. When they get to the unit, um, 
and most of it is with explosive odor. So a ton of different scenarios as well. Um, more of the combat scenarios that, that we found ourselves in is what we expose the dogs to as far as finding bombs. We need the dog <clears throat> in a gunfight, right? Uh, the dog's not going to understand when bullets are flying by him that it's dangerous for him. So he's going to go out there. He's going to find the bomb. He needs to understand that gunfire is, is nothing. He needs to be neutral to it. So we do a lot of training with gunfire around us when it comes to finding bombs. Uh, one of the things that the guys that we're after over there understand that we do is when we receive fire, we're going to run to some sort of cover and concealment and return fire. Well, they lace those areas with IEDs when, when they're, you know, they can get us in an area that there are only a few pieces of things to hide behind. So I'm the first guy there with the dog to make sure that uh, we're not going to get blown up. Right. So little things like that, the dog needs to understand obedience to odor is paramount above all else. Um, and the dog in the field needs to learn the same thing. There's a huge correlation between that that I teach to my gun dogs as well, the hunting dogs. Um, obedience to odor is, is everything. If I'm recalling that dog because I'm done hunting or because I think that this field has been hunted enough, I need him to understand that if there's a bird that he comes into contact with on that recall, he stops and he tells me there's a bird there, right? Um, whether it be a down bird from another hunt or a bird that we're after. We don't want to waste anything in the field, but we also need his obedience to be paramount, and that's huge. So that's the first thing we really start with, their environmental training, exposing to all these different platforms that he's going to be, you know, utilizing to infill and exfill, whether it be vehicle, boat, uh, aircraft of different sorts. And then um, ascend, descend, a lot of climbing with the dog, a lot of propelling with the dog, um, a lot of things that, the regular dog would never get exposed to, but that's why we select the dogs that we do that are really high drive. Um, and that kind of pushes them through where a lot of these other dogs would fail. And, and I'm assuming that all through the process, you're doing this daily evaluation of each dog, uh, their strengths, their weaknesses. And if a dog is, say, um, doesn't like to be above the ground, so to speak, then that dog's probably going to get more time in that aspect of training than, than others, a lot like, like, uh, human athletes, if you will, you know, if you're a decathlete and you have an event that's a little weaker than your others, that's the one you're probably spending more time working on. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't like to run. I never have and never will. <laughs> I had to work on, you know, you gotta yeah. be good at everything. Um, dogs are no different, right? So there are different training isms that we can use. Most of these dogs will run to get their toy no matter what. So we utilize that toy a lot. It's a bargaining chip during training. So so tell um, us a little bit of how that works. How do, how do you introduce that, that toy to build that that dog wanting to do, you know, go through a brick wall to get that toy? I mean, I've yeah. seen I've seen the law enforcement dogs and I've been amazed at, you know, at that. But uh, just to get to grab that tennis ball, they'll do about it, you know, do anything. So, but yeah. how do you introduce that? What's the first thing you do to, to when that's, that new dog comes in? That's by design. And most of our dogs have that once we get them, but okay, um, I've trained puppies, you know, that were blank slates and I really enjoy doing it. And what I do with it is a lot of times you can build a little bit of frustration in the young dog, you know, make it fun for them, make it fun for them. They could expose them to it properly give it to him in very short increments. And, and, and every time he gets it, it's a great time, whether it's a piece of leather um, that he, his, his teeth can't pierce. So he's got to understand that 
bite pressure is very important for a very young age, right? So I'll give him a little leather apron or a little strip of leather. And, um, you know, he's biting on it. It's fun. While it's in his mouth, it comes alive. And I'm jerking on it. I'm tugging on it just like a rabbit. You know, if there's a little squeaky toy in it, sometimes even better. Um, it, it kicks into their DNA what's already there, right? The, the desire to go and put their mouth on, on a source of food, potentially, that rabbit. Right. It's going to wiggle and squeak. It's going to be fun for them. Um, we do the same thing with young puppies and then we take it away from them and we pick them up and we start teaching them that every time they come out, they need to start looking forward to that object. It's the only thing in their universe. Right. And that's what happens in Europe a lot of times. They're you know, a year and a half dog, year old dog or a two year old dog that's only got toy drive and toy possession. And that's all they put into them. Every time they come out, that's what they're doing. They're playing with this toy. It's their whole world. You know, it's their whole world. Um, when they go back in, it goes away. So they come out looking forward to that thing and that thing only. And that does a lot for us. It, it allows us to have a bargaining chip in training. And then when we get the dogs, we do certain things to teach him how to find explosive odor. We pair it with that toy, right? So we'll... What we do it is in it's it's called the box method, and um, we we have a box that the dog's nose can fit in, and we'll, we'll tease him up. We'll have a guy holding him. We'll tease him up with a tennis ball or whatever his toy is. We'll show him. You know, he's three feet away. We'll show him that it disappears in this box. He runs up, shoves his nose in it. And we pop it up, and he gets it. Okay. So we do that. And we do that until the dog understands that. Go to this box, and your toy will appear. And then we start putting explosive odor in the box with the tennis ball, with the toy. So he shoves his nose in there to get his ball, and he's getting all of this explosive odor as well. It doesn't mean anything to him at first, but subconsciously, you know, his brain is starting to learn that tennis ball or my toy, explosive odor, it's as good a thing as my toy, right? And then we start slowly removing the ball, and anytime he goes and smells that explosive odor, we give him the toy. We make the toy appear. So he's starting to understand, you know, we're kind of bridging that gap that explosive odor means my toy. And then we start and we use a stew theory, which just means that every single explosive odor the dog can encounter, we we, we put in that box for him. This dogs smell at a much better rate than than we do. So um, stew theory is, is pretty simple. We smell a stew. A uh, dog would smell every different ingredient in that stew. Um, that's the same exact thing we do with explosive odor. So then we start, you know, one box has got the bomb in or the explosive odor. Now there's two boxes. Now the dog has got to go to each box, whatever box he goes to. And at this time, we've taught him to sit at the box when he smells explosive odor to get his ball. Now it's a guessing game, but it's not a guessing game because he's using his nose, right? So uh, that's kind of – and then we add more boxes, and it's he goes and he smells all the boxes. When he encounters explosive odor, he cannot – go past it right he can't just go and see if there's any more explosive odor in any box when he hits that odor he slams his butt on the ground it's very important and then a ball appears right or his toy appears so it's a fun thing and um and we wouldn't be able to do that if the dog didn't have high ball drive or high toy drive or high possession you know, once he gets that ball or that toy wants to hold on to it and then we teach him that hey man it's okay to give me the ball because now the game starts again and you'll notice the dogs with high hunt drive will get the ball and sometimes spit it and then look at the, at the game again because their uh, driving factor is to hunt. It's not the final. 
right? Most dogs with high prey drive or high possession want that toy. Um, but a guy with high hunt drive, a dog with high hunt drive, is that's going to be more of a reward sometimes than than the toy at the end of it. And that's what I really enjoy, and that's what I look for, both in these dogs as well as dogs in the field. That I what what <clears throat> what's the length of time in that process? I mean, are you talking weeks, months? Well, but again, every dog's a little different. Uh, okay. We, sometimes I can do a dog in three or four days and have them guessing between four boxes or, or finding the bomb in four boxes. And then we change up, you know, are the boxes all in a line? Are they square? Are they a triangle? Can we take a box out? Whatever it may be. Um, so different. At, at this time, too, we're also teaching um, the dog how to enter, enter a room, kind of pattern around the room kind of maybe searching from left to right, right to left, whatever it is we may want to do. Um, but that that amount of time is kind of dependent on the dog and how good you are as a trainer. Again, law of primacy states that what the dog learns first sticks, right? So you do things right, and I tell people this all the time, before you even get a dog, I want you to understand exactly what you want each command to look like. When you say sit, what do you mean exactly when you say that command? When you say come, does it mean come in the general vicinity of me or come and sit right in front of me and look at me and give me your undivided attention? Because that's my definition of come with my dog. Sit or heel, heel would be right next to my left-hand side with his head next to my knee. It's very important for the waterfowl dogs and the field trial dogs we work with. Um, it allows a few things. It allows me to line them up when, when sending them out. Um, but you've got to understand exactly what you want from the get-go. And the first time you expose that dog to that, that's what you need to accept at the end of the iteration. So he only gets paid for doing exactly what you want him to do. Um, so, yeah, the law of primacy, and that's something, you know, I'm not making these terms up at all. These are things that I've learned from great trainers and great handlers. Uh, Jacob Robinson was a, uh, a trainer for us at, at work and uh, still a personal friend of mine, and I come to him with dog issues all the time. Pat Nolan is the best dog handler and trainer that I'll ever know and meet. Um, a big lab guy. He's trained up on bird dogs. He's an animal behavioralist, and he's taught me that understanding animal behavior is more important than considering yourself a trainer. You need to be a behavioralist because once you understand what makes them tick, now you can start training to do what you like them to do. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the timeline is up to the dog and up to the trainer. Um, but we can get it done in about three days with some really slick dogs. Wow, that's amazing. I figured it'd take longer than that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes if you make mistakes in those first few days, it'll take you a few weeks or a few months. Um, one of the big things we do and some of the things we see from Europe are dogs that are trained in sport, different sports, Schutzen, French ring. Um, some dogs are article guard. They've taught, they've been taught to guard articles. So a box in a room, and that's the only thing he sees in that room, he may spin around and revert to what he's known first, right? The law of primacy, what he's learned. Is that when he guards this thing, he gets rewarded. Well, I can't go up there and have a dog take my face off next to this article because he gets graded on how close he allows people to get to the article that he's guarding, right? So, again, law of primacy is a, is a really big thing in training. And if you make those mistakes in the beginning or you don't uh, recognize that that's what you see because they might have washed out of that in Europe. They might not have been great at it, but they still know it and understand it. And he may just bad enough at it to trick you into thinking you can get close enough to it and then you're nuked right so you've got to be able to read the dog you know changes of behavior are huge that's another phrase you'll hear me say 
it's huge in the bomb dog world, whether he's finding a bomb or finding a man, being able to see those little things that he's telling you with his body. Um, he's panting, right? It's hot. He passed this certain area and closed his mouth to use just his nose, right? That's a productive area. He understands that's a productive area because we've taught him that that's a productive area through aid placement. Maybe the, the bottom of a door, the crack in the bottom of a door. Well, that's his only snapshot into the room, odor-wise, right? He can tell me what's on the other side of that door by smelling the crack and the air that's coming out from underneath the door. He understands that's a productive area in a wall that he comes to. Not many other dogs would understand that, but productive areas are huge, and we need to teach the dog to understand them and, and see them because there's times that I can't pay attention to everything he's doing because there's people out there trying to shoot me still. Um, so I need him to have a level of confidence and a level of um, – I, I need him to be able to do things on his own, right, um, in lieu of me giving him commands. So I'll tell him to go and search, and I'll try to keep an eye on him. Uh, and if he misses an area that I think is a productive aerial area, I'll, I'll put him back in that area and put him to work. Same thing that we do in the field with our dogs, right? I need my dog to understand what a productive area is in the field. Is this bird going to be out in the middle of this scalped field that's been burned? No, probably not. Is it going to be in this cover here? Probably so. Uh, is it easier for him to run around in that open field and have fun? Yeah. But is it more fun for him to find a bird and get in this cover and work for it? That's what we're trying to manipulate the dog into understanding. And we can do that through aid placement with birds as well in the field. It's, the correlation is huge between aid placement um, in the bomb world and in, 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 the, in the bird dog world. But it's... Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's something, you know, we need a dog to be independent, but we need to be a team player at the same time. So it's a lot of things that we're asking of, of all these dogs, really, on both sides of, of the coin. Um, independence is huge, but listening to me when I ask you to is also big. Um, but understanding that I'm not always going to step in to give you the answer to a problem. I need you to problem solve. It's pretty big because you don't want to build a dog who's completely dependent on the handler. And if you solve every problem for them, you're going to create that and you you also told me that uh, uh your dogs are not handler specific i mean they're 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 trained to basically work for whoever in the unit that's giving them some kind of uh, search command or whatever right yeah absolutely there'll be times that uh you know i may i may eat a bullet and not be able to continue that dog's got to continue because the mission doesn't stop because one guy's down um Mission doesn't stop for a lot of reasons a lot of times. So, yeah, he's got to be able to take guidance from others. And a lot of that comes into how well have we integrated him with that group of guys? How well have we integrated those group of guys with that dog? How many guys are scared of dogs? How many guys are going to flinch at that dog when he comes around the corner at night? Or how many guys are going to trust that he understands not to bite you because we've kind of exposed him to that during training, which is the right answer. The wrong answer is not to expose guys. So, you know, the harder you train, and the harder you, there's a saying for us in, in our world, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in combat. You got to put the hours in, you know, with this dog. Uh, and you'll, you'll see the benefits as a result of it. But yeah, absolutely. I'll always designate a, an alternate handler on the group of, with the group of guys that I'm deployed with. And if I go down, he takes the dog and continues on. Uh, but in a house too, you know, if we're doing CQB or close quarter battle, um, again, my, the dog's in there to fight with us, um, and we're, we're going to get separated a lot of times. He needs to take direction from guys. One key that most of these experienced dogs are looking for is 
where's the barrel point? You know, that's always a good indication of where the bad guy is that I get to go bite. Right? And then we start teaching them different things about that. I want them to bite them high in the thigh. I want them to leg bite so that I can still shoot over top of them if necessary. So very, a lot of things we expect from these dogs to know, but it's all, again, through aid placement and training. If I want a dog to leg bite, I'll only expose legs to them for a while in that scenario, in that CQB environment. And you can start teaching these dogs at CQB, we're just going to bite right in a building. Now, a dog will bite whatever's available for him to bite. And in a high-stress environment, I'm not going to say he won't go high on a guy because he will. But then, you know, we do a lot of practicing when it comes to marksmanship. You'd, you'd rather have him waist high or below for the most That's part. Kind of the similarity between having a dog steady to wing or steady to wing and shot. Right. Dog that's steady to wing and shot is not going to jump up on that client unless he's never hunted before. Uh, sees that bird flush, you know, and doesn't understand it's a low flying bird and shoots your dog as a result. Of it. You know, the fog of war is real overseas. As much as we practice not shooting a dog, that dog jumps up at the last second to bite a guy and we're already engaged in combat with him. You know, that dog could, could also get hit. So little things like that, you know, that's another correlation in training between some of the things that we're asking and how we get there, you know, training a dog to be steady to wing and shot or training a dog to just bite legs in a CQB environment when that's an option for them. You know, those are big things. Those are, those are things for a trainer to understand. Um, it also helps to have the, you know, the experience that I did going into this stuff because a civilian trainer working for us is kind of at a loss when it comes to tactics and, ex- and exposure to things like that and experience, fighting guys overseas he doesn't have it but since i did i was and and i'm lucky to have had it going over there i was able to train the dogs kind of the way they needed to be trained uh, because of the experiences that i had so it worked out really well for me and really well for the dogs that i got to work with i'm thankful for all those experiences because they uh they led to some success for us over there now you know the military really first kind of started using dogs as a as a tool as an asset like during vietnam wasn't that kind of the first time they they really got dogs kind of embedded with units and yeah. for the most yeah and, a lot of those and for and for the most part a lot of those dogs were like perimeter security when they were out at yeah. in the jungle and that kind of thing now do your dogs do something similar if you're if you're down in a certain area for overnight or whatever, is that dog kind of doing sentry kind of kind of duty? Or are they trained to do that also, or is that? Well, we train the dogs to never shut it off. And what I mean by that is um, I like to peek a dog's interest as a trainer. Um, anytime guys are just standing around with their dog, talking to another guy, I may sneak behind a vehicle and peek at that dog and just show him little pieces of me. Something that piques his interest. He's always got to be aware of his surroundings. And when we teach that the right way, you know, he just sees me acting like a weirdo over there. Well, at a certain point, the guys, a lot of the, tra- the, the handlers don't know it, and I don't want them to know it. I want them to be ignorant of where I am in the environment or that I'm even doing any of this, but I need the dog to be aware of everything at all times. So when he sees me acting weird, the second that I pique his interest, I'll pull the sleeve out, and he understands he gets a bite at that point. Um, so he comes running and bites me with the handler not even knowing what's going on. So we teach that in the dogs. We teach them to constantly be aware of their surroundings at all times because at any point in time, you can go have a good time if you're them. Um, and that's that's carried over overseas quite a bit, you know, because of that training came because we needed dogs, obviously, to be aware of their surroundings. 
you know, guys that we worked with and were embedded with and trained and slept with, ate with, trained with everything that ended up shooting us, you know, because they were sleeper, you know, agents for whatever, um, whatever faction we were going after. And they, they, they passed all the tests, tests that, you know, the, the partner force had given, um, it slipped under the radar. So those situations created a need for a dog to be eternally vigilant for us because unfortunately we're not at all times. You know, where if I'm engaged in a conversation, it takes me a little bit of, uh, it takes me out of the game a little, you know, I've got to focus on that. Well, that dog's job hundred percent of the time is to watch my back. So even now with the dog I have at my house, when I'm standing there with him, he's constantly looking where my back is pointed. And we teach that. I don't need you in front of me looking the same way I'm looking. I need you looking behind me because I don't have eyes back there. Uh, we teach that through aid placement, teach that a, a ton of different ways. But those are little things that I was able to kind of bring to the program um, and teach the dogs that are huge. And, and Nate Tennant, um, a trainer that he was a handler for fifth group and then he went on and trained phenomenal trainer, great guy. He taught me that, you know, teach you to always pique those dogs interest, man. At any point in time, they can go get a bite if they're doing the right things. So that's what we teach them. That's great. Um, I think obviously we've, we've spent a great amount of time uh, kind of talking about what you guys do and what you expect of your military dogs. And, and it's just, uh, I mean, I could go on, for another hour just about that. And I think our, our, our viewers and listeners uh, are going to find the same thing. We just have no clue, you know, what these dogs are, uh, what their abilities are. Um, and I'm, I'm amazed that uh, I guess what they bring to the, the, the whole fight in the sense that, you know, how big an asset they really are. You know, you, you hear, you see dogs and, and you hear stories about dogs that are with units like yours, but, until you drill down and really find out how did that dog get built to do those kinds of things. There's was, to me, there's the amazing part. And, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I give you guys all the credit in the world that you're able to put the time and effort and patience and, you know, to vet those dogs and get them to that point where they're, uh, able to, uh, successfully, uh, go on those missions like, like, like they do, like they do. Yeah. So, um, I think what we'd like to do is we'll probably, we'll take a break here. And when we come back for part two, if it's all right with you, Ian, I think we'll then kind of make that transition a little bit into some hunting dog aspects and how a lot of the things that you put in practice every day with the military dogs is something that we could utilize also in the training and handling of our hunting dogs on a, on a daily basis. I obviously have dogs that, um, we do guided hunts with and, uh, and that type of thing. And so you're right. Reading those dogs and knowing when they're on, on bird scent and, uh, uh having a dog that knows to hunt to cover that you don't just, you know, have to continue to redirect, redirect is, uh, is a valuable thing. And, uh, and, and it makes you successful in the field. And so maybe we can discuss some of those things, uh, when we come back, uh, for part two. Sure. Yeah. I enjoy it, man. There are a ton of correlations between the two types of dogs and, uh, you know, the dog in the field is as important to me when I get home as the dog that got me home. Um, and some of the, some you know, training one, uh, a little better than the other is 
little more important to me. Uh, one one keeps me alive and keeps me coming back to train the other one and have fun with it. So um, a lot of correlations, uh, and I'd love to talk to you. All right. Well, uh, we're gonna, we'll shut it down at this point uh, for part one, and uh, everybody uh, make sure that you uh, check out part two where we're going to talk about uh, more of the gun dog training and aspects of that that uh, Ian has uh, has done. So join us for part two of Ian Donovan's uh, uh, interview.